So my name's Simon and I get the privilege of speaking to you this afternoon and um, I'm really excited about this, which, um, yeah, because I think that God is going to do something amongst us. Um, If you have your Bibles with you or um, any kind of device that may have a Bible on it, um, then I'd encourage you to find the book of Philemon. If you have a paper copy of your Bible and you've not uh, regularly turn to Philemon, you'll find it's towards the back end of your Bible. If you get to Hebrews, you've gone too far. It's just before Hebrews. But it's a very short letter. And so when uh, Rob just saw the, that I was preaching from Philemon, he suggested that maybe it would be a short sermon, um, because it's a short book. But you'll notice that I'm only dealing with the first seven verses, um, so there is still plenty in it. But what I've been feeling over the last month or so as I've prepared this and I'm preaching again in a month's time is that I wanted to do a two-part series looking at the book of Philemon because I think there are some uh, quite important themes and messages for us as a church at this time. Back in June as a church we spent some time looking at the culture that there is amongst us, our church culture. So here's a little test to get you warmed up. What were the five cultural distinctives that we described as a church? Authenticity. Family. Okay, so family, honour, authenticity, courage, passion. passion. Okay, the five things. Well done. Well done, church. You were listening. That's good. Um, and over, oh, some people are feeling very relieved now that they passed the test. Um, but over the over time, we're going to keep revisiting these. These are so important to us, um, and we're going to keep revisiting them. And so I'd encourage you, as you read your Bibles, just to be looking out for how the Bible illustrates these five cultural distinctives that we believe God is placing amongst us. And I think Philemon speaks into a number of them, particularly those of honour and family. And so I'm going to be referring to those as we look at these two sermons. So Philemon gives us a, a chance, really, to look at another church culture and have a bit of a comparison and, uh, and see what we can learn from, from it. And Paul actually writes to the church in your house, hence the title. And, um, and so before we actually read the whole of the letter, just to give you a bit of background, Philemon is a friend of Paul. And uh, Paul writes this letter to him. Philemon was probably a member of the church at Colossae. And um, if you read through Colossians, you'll see why I think that, because there are some clues in the book of Colossians that will kind of be picked up in the letter to Philemon. So that's a little bit of homework for you. But one of the big giveaway clues is in the final chapter where Onesimus is mentioned in this letter to Colossians. And really, Onesimus is one of, is the main theme, the main reason for Paul writing this letter to Philemon. So I think that, that Philemon was written at the same time, actually, as the letter to the Colossians and to the Ephesians as well. And it was written at a time when Paul was in prison in Rome, probably around 60 to 62 AD. And those three letters would have been given to a guy called Tychicus, who would have trotted off Back into, um, here's the map, Sarah, I remembered to refer to it. Um, there we go. Um, he'd have tr- trotted back from Rome, which you can see there on the left-hand side, halfway up Italy, to uh, that expanded bit of the map where you've got Ephesus, you've got Colossae, uh, and some other towns around there. 
And he'd have delivered the letters. And whereas the others are written to churches, they're addressed to the churches, Philemon is addressed to this individual man, Philemon, but read out to the whole church. So bear that in mind when we read it now, because this was, although it's a personal letter, it would have been read to the whole church. And really, the key issue is that Onesimus, who was one of Philemon's slaves, has run away. He's come into contact with Paul. He's become a Christian. And now Paul is sending Onesimus back. So here we go. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, and to Apphia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank God always, making mention of you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you. Since I am such a person as Paul, the aged, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, I appeal to you, For my child, Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. I have sent him back to you in person. That is, sending my very heart, whom you wished to, whom I wished to keep with me, so that on your behalf he may minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent, I did not want to do anything so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your own free will. For perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while that you would have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. If then you regard me a partner, accept him as you would me. But if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it. Not to mention to you that you owe me even your own self as well. Yes, brother, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you, since I know that you will do even more than what I say. At the same time, also prepare me a room, for I hope that through your prayers I will be given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you as the mark Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. I think we should pray. Oh God, we love your word. 
We love the fact that we've just been able to read a letter written from the Apostle Paul to his friend 2,000 years ago. That is amazing. Preserved in eternity for us to learn something of your heart. And so we pray that you would teach us this afternoon. Father, meet with us now by your spirit, we pray. Open up your word to us. Give me words which are clear. Give us hearts which are open. And show us what it means to be the church in your house. Amen. I'm going to um, look at three aspects of the church in your house. Um, Because in this letter, I think that, that Paul describes this church as being made up of family, of being made up of workers, and being made up of soldiers. So we're going to look at each of those three aspects. We're going to look at each of those aspects in two different ways. We're going to look at how Paul speaks about these groups of people in the way he describes them. And that, I think, is where we will just catch a glimpse of this honour that he speaks about people with and this sense of family that he, he writes about. But we're also going to look at how Paul prays for these people as well. So uh, that's what we're, we're going to do this time. So we look at the verse seven verses and, and then next time I preach we'll look at the rest of the letter. So, first of all then, this group of family. Paul speaks in family language throughout the letter. I hope that you noticed it as we went through. So he, t- he describes Timothy in verse 1 as our brother, and Philemon as our beloved brother. In verse 2, he talks about Apphia as being our sister. This isn't just written men to men, this is f- a family man writing to his family. Later on in the book, he refers to Philemon twice more as brother. And Onesimus, this slave that he's sending back, he refers to as a brother. He's talking about family. And I just wonder, when we reflect on the way we talk about each other, do we use that family language? Is that the thing that comes through? Or do we describe each other by other things? The one who wears the dodgy shorts or something like that. Not that there is anyone, I believe, but in case there were. But family language, this is how Paul thinks when he talks about the church. The next slide is a real treat for you. It's a picture of my family. And um, you'll see what a good-looking lot we are. Um, This was taken at the end of August And it's the first time in nine years that we've all got together. One of my brothers lives over in the States. Um, You can guess which one that is. And um, we... (laughs) Just saying. Just saying you can guess if you want. It was a kind of offer of a guess. And um, so we all got together. And... uh, Within that photo, there's a a range of ages from people in their 60s through to a minus three-month-old. You can try and spot that one if you want as well. Um, And, uh, and you know, a huge range of people there. So different sets of qualifications. There's a couple of doctors in the picture. There's some people who left school with a sort of standard set of results. There's other people who um, left school with no qualifications at all. There are people in there who are just learning to read. And there's different nationalities, four different nationalities in there. So we've got English, who were gutted a week ago. We've got some Welsh, who were gutted yesterday. We've got 
some Americans. We've got a German as well. Four nationalities. Different personalities. Some of them are highly organized. Very focused sort of people. Some just go with the flow. Some live with their head in the clouds. Some are just so laid back, it's infuriating for others. (laughs) Some are fun, some are loud, some are bossy. Some are just lovely to hang out with. (laughs) I think I might be getting myself into trouble here. And these differences in personality particularly can cause frictions and difficulties within family life. It's not always plain sailing just because we're a, a family. But when I look at that picture, I don't see kind of that set of things. What I see is my brothers and my sisters-in-law and my nephews and my nieces and my parents. And above all of that, I love them. Love them deeply. And it was special to be able to get together for once in however many years. Special memories, special times. And I love every single one of them, despite their foibles and failings, despite their issues, and they love me despite my foibles and failings and my issues too. We've got a past that is shared, we've got memories together, and we are family. And it's exactly the same in the church, spiritually. We are family. We share a past because of what Jesus has done. And therefore we share a future because of what Jesus has brought together. And that's why this family language permeates the New Testament. And is certainly right through Philemon. So let's think about that for a minute. The fact that each of us in this room can call God Abba Father. The fact that each of us has the right to become a child of God. The fact that each of us can experience the love which the Father has lavished on us and called us children of God, because that is what we are. 1 John 3, 1. Get that into your heads if you don't know it. We're now members of God's household, brought into that family. We've received the spirit of adoption of sons so that we can call Jesus our brother and each of us co-heirs with him. That is absolutely mind-boggling. The fact that I was far off and now have been brought near. The fact that we were far off and have been brought near. The fact that we were dead and now are alive. The fact that we were in darkness and now we're in light. The fact that we loved sin and that's been replaced with a love for God. The fact that he just loves us. He just loves us. That's what we sang. Tom said to me before the service, is there anything in particular that you want to sing? I went, oh, no, not really, nothing on my mind. And then as we sang that chorus, I realised I've got it quoted in my notes. He loves us, oh, how he loves us. Oh, how he loves us. We can't sing it or say it enough. Oh, how he loves us. And this is not just a set of facts or some nice words that we can kind of sit comfortably on, this has to lead to action. You see, our new status in God's family means that we live differently from how we would otherwise. We live as a family. And so even in this 25-verse letter, we read things like the church that meets in your house. 
It's in your house, in your home. That's where the church meets. The fact that Paul, and I hope you got some of the humour in there, but he asks for a favour regarding Onesimus. We'll look at this a lot more next time. But he asks for that favour on a relational basis. I, Paul, the old man and now prisoner, I appeal to you for love's sake. He says to Philemon, prepare a room for me. He wants to come and stay. That's what families do. We've just had Beck's sister and her family staying with us over the weekend. It's what families do. They come and hang out and eat your food and use your stuff and you need to tidy up when they go. And it's great to hang out with them. It's great to hang out with them. And how he prays for his family. How he prays. It's amazing. There's a genuine joining of hearts, an emotional bond because of what God has done in Jesus for us. And so let's look at how he prays. Verses 4, 3 to 7. He prays with thanks. Verse 4, I thank my God always. Can we say that about our family? We thank God always for our family. Why? Because he hears of their love and faith their exploits, what they're up to, and that makes him thankful. So why was there a cheer when Nathan and Rada were announced as visiting? Because we hear of their love and their faith. We hear what they're doing up in Wolverhampton sort of direction. Yes. (laughs) Because they're family. And so news travels along the grapevine and we celebrate and now we get to hug them and have a coffee with them. He talks about their love. The love which you have for Jesus and all the saints. And then, I love this in verse 7. For I've come, I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love. Because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Do you refresh others? Do others in your family refresh you? That's what it should be like. When we gather together like this, there should be mutual refreshing. That's what we should aim for. That's what the church in your house is like. So let me ask you, what are the prayers like for the members of your family? Do you pray for each other? Do you thank God always? Do you listen out for news of them so that that will drive you to thankfulness to God for them? Do you know what it means to have brothers and sisters who you genuinely love and who genuinely love you? Because that's the sort of church we want to build. One of our cultural distinctives, remember, is family. So that's what it should look like. I wonder if you miss people when they're not around for a bit. Anyone missing Steve and Hannah? And Fraser and Josiah? I hope you're reading their blog. For those of you who don't know, two and a half weeks ago, they went to live in Shanghai. We miss them. They're family. I've been challenged by my five-year-old Joseph, who at night has unprompted been praying for Fraser to settle into his new school. That is family. That is a five-year-old going, hang on a minute, my brother who I used to hang out with, is no longer there. God bless him. That's family. So when we hear of them, 
when we read their blog? Do we thank God for what he is already doing in them? The stories that Hannah's talking about, who she's meeting. Praying for them as they're putting together all their furniture they've got from Ikea. Good luck with that. I know that most of us in the room are British, and I'm going to make you feel extremely uncomfortable now, but I think it's important. Sorry. I know if I was sat there, I would feel (laughs) equally, equally like that. But I'd like you to stand up. And I'd like you to look around the room at the other people. And not just a kind of little glance, but I'd like you to catch people's eyes. I'd like you to look at their faces. And I'd like you... I know, I'm sorry, but this is important. We're family. (laughs) And I'd like you to look at them and think, that's my brother, that's my sister. I'd like you to do that. I know it's uncomfortable. And I do apologize to any visitors. We don't do this. We don't do this every week, but you are very welcome into our rather strange family. Okay, you can sit down now. Thank you. But this is, this is important. This is important. Because these are the people that we're building with. These are the people that we love. These are the people who we're on mission together with. We're family. We're family. So family speaks of the Father's heart, and that's the first group that that Paul uh, talks about in this letter. But he also talks about workers. If family talks of the Father's heart, workers speaks of the Father's call. And right in verse 1, he describes Philemon as our beloved brother and fellow worker. And then when he rounds out the letter, he lists a number of different people, five different people, and he describes them as my fellow workers. This is something which if you read through Paul's epistles, you will see that he uses this phrase, fellow workers. And it's a phrase that means, usually he refers to individuals, um, uh, but it's a phrase which means one who labours alongside another in furthering the cause of Christ. And so let me give you a more detailed example. Back in uh, 1 Thessalonians, in chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, this is Paul writing again to a church in Thessalonica. He says, We sent Timothy, our brother, Notice the family language again. Our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions. For you yourselves know we have been destined for this. So the fellow worker, fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, that's important, is sent, why? To strengthen them, to encourage them so they won't be disturbed. That's what fellow worker means. That you labour together for the cause of Christ, for the gospel of Christ. And it's to bring strength and encouragement to those whom you labour with. Now there's a really important thing which we all know about workers, and that is that they represent their employers. 
you're sent to do the work uh, that you're employed to do by your boss, and very often you have kind of colleagues alongside, and that's what you go and do. I visit a lot of schools and uh, work with lots of teachers, and I'm very aware that when I go into a school, I'm representing the company that I work for. And if I don't do a good job, then they will hear about it, and that will not be good. Okay. We once went and bought a car, uh, it's our current car actually, um, from a from a garage, uh, a dealership, and uh, the after-sales service we received was shocking. It was appalling. There were two issues that they were meant to deal with before they sold us the car. They dealt with one a month after, and we had to argue for many, many, many hours um, for the other one. And in reality, it was just one poor sales assistant. But he represented that company to us. And we've never used them again and never intend to. Never sent our car there for MOTs or services or checkups or whatever they have. Just not interested in using them. Why? Because he represented something of that company to us. Now, it might be flawed, but that's what he did. And it's exactly the same is true of us. When we're on God's work, we represent the one who sends us. So as his workers, we are Christ's representatives. That's why elsewhere, Paul calls us ambassadors or representatives of heaven. What people think of us affects what people think of God. That is really important. So work... Well, this is an interesting one. We haven't got time to look at what the Bible says all about work, but I'll just give you a few little snippets to get you thinking. So the first person to do any work in the Bible is God, because he creates. And in Genesis 2.2, it says that after he'd completed creation, he rested from all his work. I love that. Love the fact that God models for us what work looks like and what rest looks like, but that's another sermon. Later on in that chapter, he then appoints man and woman to cultivate and keep the garden, i.e. work in the garden. So right there in the early chapters of the Bible, work is established as a thing that God calls us to do. And Jesus picks up on this, so i like I say, we haven't got time to look at all of it because I've jumped from Genesis to Matthew. Um, Jesus picks up on this and issues a call. Do you remember that he says to the fishermen, you're no longer to be fishermen but fishers of men? And then in chapter 9 of Matthew, he says this. He says to his disciples, the last two verses of chapter 9 of Matthew, the harvest is plentiful but the workers a few. Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send workers out into his harvest. And in the next chapter, he sends out his disciples. What to do? To preach the gospel, to heal the sick, to raise the dead, to get rid of demons. He sends them out to do that. Gives them authority and sends them. So Jesus calls his disciples to work. Work in furthering the cause of Christ. Work for the gospel. And then, of course, James talks about faith without works is dead. There's this expectation that once we've encountered Jesus, there will be an outworking of our faith. It's not just passive head knowledge, not just intellectual assent. This is a call to action, a call to do stuff. 
And so when Paul talks of fellow workers, he's talking about those who have faith and are called by Jesus to go and do the work of furthering the gospel of Christ. And he prays for them too. Did you notice that in the prayer? Verse 6, I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. There's a, if you study Philip, uh, Philemon, you will know, there's a lot of controversy about how verse 6 should be translated. I prefer these two translations rather than the one I just read. Um, pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective. Pray that you may become active in sharing of your faith. That is what fellow workers do. Share your faith. That's the work. Pray that there will be workers sent into the harvest field. Why? To share your faith. To further the cause of Christ. And so, Paul doesn't just identify fellow workers, he prays for them. And so, when we're praying for each other, what do we pray for? Do we pray that we will be effective in sharing our faith? That's Paul's model here in Philemon. And it's important because people are out there working away and yet we're fellow workers together. The third group then that Paul talks about in this letter, so he talks about family, which is communicating something of the Father's heart. He talks of workers speaking of the Father's call and he talks about soldiers, which speaks of the Father's mission. And so in verse 2, Archippus, our fellow soldier. And it's not really the sort of language that we tend to use, I think. Not quite sure when the last time I went up to anyone and went, hello, fellow soldier, how are you doing? It's not really my style, and maybe it should be. Um, But Paul, you see, is in prison. He's a casualty of war. That's what happens in war. Some people die, some people get injured, some people get taken captive. And that's what's happened to Paul here. And he mentions his imprisonment quite a lot, verse 10, verse 13. He talks about his fellow prisoner in verse 23. And so Archippus, he describes as a fellow soldier. One who endures hardship in the cause of Christ. So if a fellow worker is someone who works to further the cause of the gospel, a soldier is one who endures hardship for the cause of the gospel or the cause of Christ. And uh, he writes more about this in 2 Timothy um, chapter 2 and verse 3. He says, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ. Which means that if you're a soldier, then you can expect hardship. You can expect that to follow as part of your calling. And why is that? Well, he gives us the answer as well. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul writes, To put on the full armour of God, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armour of God so you'll be able to resist. Whenever we reflect the Father's heart of love for us by demonstrating self-giving love, 
Whenever we further the cause of the gospel by working into whatever sphere he's called us into, we will come into contact with the enemy and we will be in combat with him. Fact. That's what happens. In the Lord of the Rings, which is quite big, um, the first book is called The Fellowship of the Ring. And that is all about a group of quite varied characters, men, hobbits, elves. There's a picture up there which hasn't come out very well. Uh, dwarves, there's a wizard. It's all pretty realistic. And um, <laughs> they, they form a, a band, a fellowship. And they live together and they work together for the sole purpose of accomplishing the mission which they've been commissioned for. And that mission is the overthrow of evil through the destruction of the one ring. And that will ensure the safety of the Shire and peace across Middle Earth, which is where they live. Sorry if what I've just said there means nothing to some of you if you've not read it or seen it. My point is that this was a very varied somewhat eclectic group of beings who were formed into a tight-knit band and soldiered right on the front line with a single mission in their minds, which was to destroy this or overthrow this evil and retain this culture which they held dear. And I think soldiers really are culture warriors. That's how I'd like us to think of them. A soldier will either defend a culture from invading attack or it will march forward in order to take out the culture that it it believes in. It's all about where the cultural battle lines are. And so soldiers are on the front line of this battle. And so when Paul talks to Archippus, our fellow soldier, he's saying, Archippus, you are on the front line. You might well have a church in your house, but you're on the front line doing the work of the kingdom. And so he prays for that as well. He prays for these fellow soldiers. So those the verses will come up again, but he says, I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective. That's warfare. It's not just sharing your faith. Yeah, Jesus loves me. Hooray. Now I'll buy my groceries. No, It's more than that. It's that that will be effective. It will advance the kingdom. It will take ground for the gospel. That's what soldiers do. They take ground. They advance. And it seems to me that there's a big overlap here between the work of a soldier and the work of a worker. So if worker is furthering the cause of the gospel of Christ and a soldier is suffering hardship for the cause of Christ, those two things are going to come together. Because if you further the cause of Christ, you're on the front line. And therefore, you will come under attack and suffer hardship. And so these soldiers need all the resources they can get their hands on. Because they're on the front line. The soldiers on the front line can't achieve victory unless the backup resources are flowing through to them. So they're able to advance that front line. And so that's where we come in as a church. We're on the front line. We're supporting people on the front line. We need to pray for each other. 